Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. We're in the midst of our wisdom series here at Restitutio, and we've looked at the book of Proverbs and Job, and now today, like Job, we're going to wrestle with the anomalies to general principles of wisdom contained in much of the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Sometimes our world functions in chaotic and unpredictable ways. I mean, let's face it, right? Sometimes the race is not won by the swift, nor the battle by the strong, nor bread harvested by the wise, nor riches acquired by the intelligent, nor favor gained by those with knowledge. Instead, time and chance happen to them all. Now, of course, generally, the fastest person does win the race, Generally, the wise do harvest bread. Generally, the intelligent do acquire riches and so on, but not always. So here's the question. What is a person to do in these confusing and unfair circumstances? In this message, Pastor Victor Gluckin shares key insights from the book of Ecclesiastes to help you know how to make sense of these situations and figure out what to prioritize when the world seems utterly broken. Here now is episode 296, Ecclesiastes, Meaningful Life, with Pastor Victor Gluckin. Uh, We started this weekend talking about wisdom, that is something we should long for, seek for, pursue. And uh, if we want to live a good life, we should seek after and hold on to wisdom. And Jerry talked about the treasure we have called the book of Proverbs, which is simple wisdom for a complicated world. And then this morning we talked about how life is complicated and that there's suffering and evil in the world and a lot of questions and not always every answer, but God is bigger than all of it and he has a plan that he is working that sometimes we don't see. And in Ecclesiastes, which is a shorter book than Job, it is packed with wisdom and sayings. It was Uh, recorded by Solomon, the king, who wrote so many of the Proverbs. And essentially what Ecclesiastes is, is it's a a recording of Solomon's quest for the meaning and purpose of life. And uh, he is going to make many observations. He's going to express some pretty serious emotion and frustration. And then we'll make some conclusion uh, statements in light of these observations. The thing about Solomon is Solomon is... Uh, qualified to talk about what life is all about because he lived a lot of life. Solomon was the king, and as we've read uh, a couple times, that God gave him wisdom and insight, and and he received wealth and success and uh, accomplishments uh, like no other king, and he was God's man. And so Solomon uh, really can speak to us about a lot of things in life that, that we maybe just scratching the surface in. And we'll start in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Solomon calls himself the preacher. Verse 1, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, if I started my sermon tonight saying, "Eh, what's the point? It wouldn't be, it wouldn't go, you wouldn't think it would go very well from there. And that's how Solomon starts this record. He, he's basically saying, like, emptiness, right? The, the holy of holies was, like, the most holy place. And vanity of vanities, like, 
a way of saying like everything is just meaningless. And what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about life. Verse 3, he continues his downward spiral. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets and the hastening into its place and there rises, it rises there again. Verse 9, that which has been is that which will be and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the what? The sun. So Solomon begins his his work on what life is all about by saying life isn't about much. And it seems like things are just going the way they've been going forever. And here we are, his generation back then and now our generation here, trying to figure out what life is all about. Life was before us and life was after us. I know that's hard for millennials to accept. (laughs) But there was life before us and there will be life after us. And Solomon's looking at this situation about like the one day goes to another, one day goes to another, one day goes to another, saying like, what's the point of all of this? Time keeps passing, and my little blip here doesn't seem to be very significant. I want to live, I, I believe you probably do too, I want to live a meaningful life. I want to live a life of purpose. But Solomon's trying to figure out what is it really all about if just we have this short little time, and then new people take these places in 40 years and 50 years, and just keeps on going. What's the point of all of this? He's trying to get to it. And he says in verse 2 again, he says that it's vanity of vanities. That word vanities is the Hebrew word hevel, which means like a vapor or a breath. All right, so when it's very cold out, you see your breath, right? Do you see your breath when it's cold out? So you see it for a minute and then it's gone. So like there's substance to it, but it doesn't last very long. And that's what he's saying life is like. Now, we probably don't come in tonight thinking that life is meaningless, But Solomon is going to begin a quest and he invites us to join him on this quest to find out what life is really all about and and what a life of purpose would look like. And he's telling us that so much of life is just meaningless. Sort of depressing. And so what Solomon is going to do, because of his position as king and a man of great wisdom, is he is going to spend a significant amount of time in his life, doesn't say how long, years, months, weeks, And he is going to fully engross himself in all of the different uh, things that you and I uh, pursue. And he's going to start with pursuing to the fullest to see if this is where life is really uh, found and what life is all all about in pleasure. He's going to set to experience all of life to find where is meaning and purpose. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to start this quest. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there was, what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven in the few years of their life. He wants to find out what life is all about, and he's going to start by just indulging in pleasure. I like things that bring me pleasure in my life, right? I like a good meal. I like a good dessert, clearly. 
I, I love, I love go, having experiences. I, lo- I love things that bring me pleasure, don't you? Right? You know, that's not a weird thing to say as a Christian. Like, we like things that bring us pleasure. We don't like things that are the opposite of pleasure. And so he's going to say, maybe life, maybe the purpose of life and meaning in life is found by enjoying as much pleasure as we possibly can. And he's going to do that. I enlarged my works, verse 4. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. I mean, he's fully out going into this here. And then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all of my labor, and this was my reward for all of my labor. So he's fully jumping in to living a life without any restraint. If he wanted to have sex with someone, he just did. If he wanted to enjoy a meal and then a second meal or just have dessert for a meal, he did. He, wanted, he collected all the money. He didn't think about to be discretionary. He just got what he wanted, right? You may not want oxen and camels and stuff like that, but think about cars, right, or motorcycles, right? Maybe you're not into trees and stuff like that, but whatever it is that we would want in our culture, he got it. And so he's going to tell us, perhaps, after all the pleasure that I found, that's what life's all about. And if that's what he says, then we should make our life pursuit to enjoy as much pleasure as possible because the guy that experienced all of it is going to say, that's where purpose and meaning is found. Let's see what he said. Verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hand had done and all the labor which I exerted, and behold, it was all what? Vanity. And striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So after all of his searching, all of his enjoyment and pleasure, he said even that was empty and fleeting. Let's see what else he does. The next quest he pursues is maybe purpose and meaning is found in in working isn't work like the opposite of pleasure a lot of times right it's like the weekend ends and we have to go back to work he's like okay maybe it's not found in pleasure maybe it's found in work and so let's see what he says because if he discovers that just working hard and doing the job before us is where meaning and fulfillment comes in then all of us would be wise to follow his advice let's see what he says verse 18 He spends all this time working. In verse 18, he says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all of the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he gives his legacy to the one who has not labored with them, 
This too is vanity and great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in this striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is what? This too is what? Vanity. Vanity. He's working hard. He's doing all the jobs that he can, and he realizes at the end of all of my work and my labors, even if I'm like a great worker, I build a great business, I hand it over to somebody, and they may squander it all. That stinks, right? You work hard, you, you build a small business, it's profitable, you're making a name for yourself, and you're about to hand it over to your son who's a punk, who, while your body's still warm in the ground, sells the business, and tries the pleasure thing. I mean, come on! And he's saying this is what life, this is what's happening every day in the world around us. And so it can't just be about working hard, and it's not just about finding a bunch of pleasure. What is the meaning of life? Where is purpose and fulfillment really found? And he continues in other quests. He, he, he puts a lot of effort into becoming a wise man. He, and then he says, Forget that. I'm just going to be a fool for a while and see if fools are happy. And, and, and that doesn't work out. And then he says, you know what? I'm going to be about justice. And then he's like, man, there isn't even justice in the world. So every pursuit that he pursues, he finds out that it's just empty and it's not giving him the fulfillment and satisfaction that his soul is looking for. And so this brings us to what is a major theme of these first three chapters. Uh, if, you have, if you have the Bible in front of you, just... Jump around with me here. Verse, verse 3 of chapter 1 says, What advantage does man have in all his work? Right? What does man get from all the things that he's doing? Verse, uh, verse 2 of chapter 2, What does it accomplish, he asks. Verse 11, There's no profit. Verse 18, He's looking for the fruit of his labor. 19, Fruit of his labor. Fruit of his labor. Legacy. Verse 22, What does a man get? So, so much of, of life for Solomon, and, and really for us, is pursuing things that give us something back. To find something that rewards us or gives us something, whether it's accomplishment or money or, or, or fulfillment emotionally, like, so much of what we're looking for and what Solomon was trying to jump into these different in his quest was find something that would give him something back. What's the profit of, of living wise, he says? What's the profit of, of, of working hard? What do you get from being a fool? What do you get from uh, living for pleasure? He's trying to find out, what can I get back in light of living a certain way? And so Solomon becomes frustrated because it seems like life doesn't work like it's supposed to. Here's what we all want. We want to work hard and get money from the work we do, right? Nobody, wanna, nobody wants to work really hard for just a little money, right? Don't you want to like hardly work for a lot of money, okay? Uh, you you want to be in a relationship with someone who when you love them, what do they give back to you? Love. You want to uh, have experiences in life that aren't blah and, and vanity and futile. You want to have experiences in life that are enjoyable, those of you that have come back to Revive, you come back perhaps because you got something out of it. And maybe there's some people that didn't come back because, ah, I didn't get anything out of it. We love to get things out of the things that we do. Amen? And so we think 
as Solomon is teaching us, that the way life is supposed to work is if you do X, you get Y. But life doesn't work like that. A lot of times, what you hope to get, you get the opposite. Here's how we want life to work. Live the right way, get good things. If you live the wrong way, you get bad things. But life often works like this. Live the right way and have trouble. Live the wrong way and have ease. Isn't that the world we live in? Some of us are trying to do the right thing and still have trouble. Some of us are, have lived lives of sin and foolishness, and, and things went pretty well for us in that time for a season. Right? You made money when you were a drug dealer. And now you're at Walmart bagging, and it's not as, it's not as good. And so in our heart, now I know that when I say like we want to do what's right and have good things come back to us, I would imagine most of us are like, no, that's not the way it works. We know that. But in our hearts, we really do want it to go that way. We do. We, we get ticked off when we don't get noticed you know, for the achievements we had in school and, and somebody else does, or we get passed over even though our essay was just as good and we get denied and all these different things. We, we don't like that. We don't go, oh, it's no big deal. The world is broken, and so it doesn't always work out that way, right? Sometimes when you do what's wrong, good happens, and sometimes when you do what's right, bad happens. What's up with that? Here's an example. A few days ago, a few weeks ago, uh, we were driving home from uh, my, my kid's Christmas concert. And the concert went late. And so my son, Josiah, who's four, usually goes to bed at seven. And now it's almost eight o'clock. And those of you that have children who know when they're overtired, they're just terrible. There's like, there's like an edge to them. They're just mad about everything. Would you like a cookie? No! I mean, it's just it's crazy. <laughs> it, I'm like that too sometimes. And, and so... So we leave the concert, and Grandma and the girls come with me, and Jess says, I need to leave right now with Josiah. I got to get home. So she, she takes her mom's car to drive home. I get home with Grandma, with my girls, and Mom's not home yet. She left before us, and I'm home first. And I'm thinking, you know what? She probably went to Dunkin' Donuts to get him something to eat, because that's what you do if you live in Rhode Island. And she's not home yet. And so then I get a text from Jess with a picture of blue and red flashing lights in the rearview mirror. My wife had gotten pulled over for speeding. Now, here's where things get interesting. My wife was speeding, and as she pulled over for the, for the cop, my son who had unbuckled himself from his car seat, flipped over into the, the seat well with the seat and everything. So now my son is, is laying on the back seat of the floor, not buckled in. And the cop's coming. She's speeding. My son's now on the floor. And, and, and you know, he's supposed to be buckled in, you know, harnesses and, like, helmets and all that rear-facing till he's 20. And so he, he's on the floor now crying. The cop comes over, the baby's in the, the four-year-old son is in the back crying, and, and he goes, 
you know, license and registration or whatever you guys say, Russ. And, um, <laughs> and my wife says in her Jess way, I'm sorry, my son just fell. Could I just buckle him in? I mean, like, what is the cop thinking when she sees this woman who's like, I'm sorry, hold it. Can you hold on one second? I need to buckle my son back in because he just fell out of his car seat. And he goes, okay. <laughs> and so she puts him back in the seat, buckles him in. And then he goes, could I have your license and registration? And then she realizes she's driving her mom's car and her wallet is in the car I'm driving. So she doesn't have her license. And she goes, I'm sorry, I don't have my license. And he goes, well, can I have the registration? She goes, I'm not sure where it is. This isn't my car. <laughs> in fact, I've never driven this car before. It's my mom. I don't even know where the glove compartment is. But I live just down the road. If you want to come with me to my apartment, I'll get you my license. So now my wife just asked the cop out. <laughs> She doesn't have her license. The kid's screaming on the floor, unbuckled. She was speeding. We all forgot she was speeding at this point. <laughs> she doesn't have a registration. She's driving someone else's car who has a different last name than her. And she's just invited him back to her apartment where she can show him his, her wallet. So she's texting me all this, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. So I'm like, I need to go out there and drive to where she is and meet the cop. And now I'm concerned, I'm gonna pull up, get out of my car, and he's gonna be like, what are you doing? And I'm gonna get shot or something. Right? <laughs> and so I, I'm like, you know, I'm very, uh, trying to be real manly about this here to protect my wife. So what I did was I pulled over into the library and turned all the lights off so that he wouldn't know I was there. But I had my phone, if she needed something, she could text me. Guess what? I go back home, she comes back home, she did not even get a ticket. <laughs> I mean, how many, where's Russ? How many violations did I list off? Like nine! She stole the car, probably. She, does, she doesn't have documentation because she's probably an illegal immigrant. She, all sorts of stuff are wrong, and he says, oh, it's okay, you can go. The world does not work the way it's supposed to. <laughs> she did everything wrong and they let her go. I'll tell you what, you know, it, we have, we have African-American friends, young men who were in that situation. Who knows what would have happened to them? We're honest. She's home, no ticket. So she does the wrong thing. Don't tell her I told you this. She does the wrong thing, but good happens to her. Two weeks ago, on Sunday, the, the Sunday before Christmas, big important day at church, right? We're having our Christmas service, wonderful celebration of, of the birth of Christ. We leave church, my wife leaves church, walks out to her car, and she finds that the passenger side window has been shattered. And her wallet and her phone were stolen. Somebody came during our church service, smashed her window, and stole her wallet 
and her phone. We're doing the right thing, and then bad happens. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And it wasn't the cop confirming that she had the ID. It wasn't him who broke the window. <laughs> I mean, like, that was in like, a, 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 like 10 days. She does the wrong thing, and good happens. We're doing the right thing, and bad happens. And that seems to be, more often than we would like, the way the world works. In big ways, in small ways, it doesn't seem like we get what we think we should get by living the way we think we should live. And so we can, we can totally sympathize with Solomon saying, what's the point then? If we're going to get robbed while we're trying to do the right thing, then what's the point of doing the right thing? And she's out doing the wrong thing and gets away. I mean, the, the way that the world we think is supposed to work is broken. And so, if we don't realize that, we will be tempted to navigate our lives based on how things are going, based, you know, good or bad. Maybe you're like this. Sometimes I look at how smoothly my life is going to determine whether or not God is behind me or blessing me. And when there are problems or trouble, I think that it's an indication that I'm not on the right track and that God isn't with me. You ever feel that way? You're having trouble, so it must be because you're doing the wrong thing and, and when things are going great and, and, and the girl calls you back and you, know, you get the job, it must be because you're on the right track and, and God is blessing you. And you know what that's called? That's called living your life for what you get. That's called having a relationship with God based on what you get out of it. If you're doing wrong, it must mean God's not there. But we know from the scriptures that that's not true. But as Americans and Canadians, as Westerners or whatever we are, we have to be very careful that we don't align our, uh, our moral compass and our way of living based on if I do this, I get this, so I must keep doing this to get this. We were doing the right thing by being at church, praising God, and fellowshiping with other believers. But bad happened. And it was very tempting for me to think, well, something must be going on. Like, did I sin somewhere because the car got broken into? Is Jess sinning somewhere that I don't know about because this happened to her? It didn't happen to anybody else in the parking lot. It happened to us. And I started thinking, wait, maybe something's wrong here. Maybe we did something wrong. The kids are acting weird. Maybe something's wrong, right? But that's buying into this, if I do it this way, good happens, way of thinking about the world. And, and, and Solomon is saying, no, that's not, that's not, that's, that's just vanity. It's empty to think that way. And the reason why it's so dangerous is because we will end up living our lives if we live for what we get out of it, we will end up living our lives only for what we can get out of it. We'll, we, we will love people when they love us. We will uh, do what's right if we get acknowledged. We will work if they pay us. And, and that's just not the way the world works. And so if it's more than that, what is the purpose and meaning and point of life? Let's, let's go to Ecclesiastes now, chapter 8. Solomon 
dives into a lot of stuff trying to figure out what life is all about. And he really knocks this idea of live for what you can get out of it. And what he wants to do is he wants to point us to something bigger than the here and now and how things play out in the few short years that we have. So what he said so far is that it's, it just seems empty to live for what you get because a lot of times you don't even get what you want. Live for pleasure, but it leaves you empty. Work really hard, but you don't get paid what you want and then the bums kid takes over the business and screws us all over. So what, is, what, are, what should we be living for if it's not just about what we get out of it now? And he's going to tell us, starting in verse 11 of chapter 8. These are the conclusions that he starts to uh, give to us. He says in verse 11, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Let's read that again. That's profound right there. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men, children, people, humans, they are given to fully do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear Him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not what? Because he does not fear God. There's that fear of God point again. And so what Solomon begins to learn is, there are people that are living the wrong way, and it seems like good is happening to them. And people that are living right, it seems like things aren't working well for them sometimes. And he says, the reason why we're tempted to think that the way we live right now doesn't matter is because justice isn't always exacted quickly in the world in which we live. And so we're tempted to think that the choices we make now don't really matter as much because it seems like there's no consequence to the bad things in the world in which we live. And he says you're forgetting that there's something bigger going on than just this life. Although the sinner does hundred, uh, evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Look at chapter 11. Solomon is trying to get us to realize that life is about more than just this life. Okay? There's a lot of words, the vanity stuff. If you read Ecclesiastes you know, tomorrow during your devotional time, you're going to walk away going, what? You might feel that right now. You're like, Victor, I got the story with Jess. That was funny. But like, when you get to this, the text, I don't know what you're talking about. What Solomon is trying to say is the, the, the life and the world that we live in right now, just like it's always been, doesn't always work the way that it's supposed to. And he's trying to get us to realize that it's because this world is broken and sometimes evil people have success and the righteous get stepped on. But he knows something that mainstream doesn't know. 
He knows that there is a day coming when God is going to judge every person and sort out every act, every word, every choice, every decision, every thought, every inaction that every human that's ever lived has ever done. And so though we don't see the world working the way we want it to, Solomon is saying there is a day coming when God is going to make things right. And so if we, in this moment, in 2019, buy into living for what we can get now, we might be in trouble. Because it doesn't always, the justice doesn't always come in this life, but it will come. And so each of us have to think about the way we're living right now, whether or not we are living the, the life of wisdom, which doesn't always make sense, or living the life for now to see what we can get. Those are the two choices. Wisdom, and maybe you'll get some good stuff, maybe you'll get some bad stuff. Fearing God, maybe you'll get some good stuff, maybe you'll get some bad stuff. Or living like a fool, not living the way of wisdom, not fearing God, and having to stand before God on judgment day and answer for why you lived the way you did. And Solomon knows that. And he gets to this point and realizes, why was I thinking about all these other pursuits? If the righteous fear God, he's going to sort it out. And he wants us to hear that tonight. Because I am very tempted to live for what's happening now and what I can get out of it. But living like that, is like living for the last breath I took is gone. It's empty. So he says in verse uh, 9 of, of chapter 11, he says to us tonight, rejoice, young man, young woman, during your childhood, let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart, and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. I mean, that's like some profound, ancient wisdom he just dropped. The way of wisdom is not the way of uh, total sorrow and being grumpy all the time. There are many good things in this life for us to enjoy and to take pleasure in, to have experiences with, and to, to get love, and to receive love. And he, he tells us, young people, he says, rejoice while you're young, and enjoy your life. Think about what's in your heart, and, and go that way, and go that way, but know that however, we, however it is that we choose to go, that there's going to be a judgment. And he tells that to us now, because it's time for us to think about that now, and not when we get closer to that day. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. I'd like to read now chapter 12, verse 1 through 7. I have from the New Living Translation. I want, I want us to read this tonight like Solomon is speaking it to each one of us. 
This is the last chapter. He's, he's investigated all of life, and he's trying to figure out what is the point of life and how should we live our lives, and he says this. Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say, life is not pleasant anymore. Remember him before the light of the sun, the moon, and the star is dim to your old eyes and rain clouds continually darken your sky. Remember him before your legs, the guards of your house start to tremble and before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding before your eyes, the women looking through the windows see dimly. Next slide. Remember him before the door to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. Remember him before you become fearful of, of falling and worry about danger in the streets, before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom and you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper and the capperberry no longer inspires sexual desire. Remember him. Before you near the grave, your everlasting home, when the mourners will weep at your funeral. Yes, revive, family. Remember your creator now while you are young, before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Don't wait until the water jug is smashed at the spring and the pulley is broken at the well, for then the dust will return to the earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Solomon is, is talking to you and I tonight. And he's saying that, that while we're young, remember your creator. There's a lot of other things vying for our affections and our hearts. There's a lot of things calling out to us that we will get something out of now and, and we'll feel good now and we'll feel satisfaction now and fulfillment. And, and some of those things are good. But now is the time for us to remember our Creator and live for Him and to fear Him and to walk in His wisdom and not go our own way because we're not going to have the chance to use the energy and life and intelligence and bodies that can move the way they do, the way they do for very long. Life is moving quick. Life is moving quick. My daughter seems like she was just born. She's nine. I remember when Noah was born, he came to teen camp. Some of you were teens with me. Some of you were teens when, when Sean and I led your teen events. And, and now, man, we're married. We've got kids. We're, we're, our bodies are starting to hurt. We can't sleep on these little mattresses anymore. <laughs> it's moving quick. Time is moving quick. I used to be able to eat things I can't eat anymore, and I used to be able to do a lot of things I can't do anymore, and Solomon is saying to us, don't waste your lives, don't waste your youth, remember your creator. It may not always make sense to live for God, but it's the right way to live, and in the end, he's going to work it out, and when you and I stand before our creator in judgment, we'll not be ashamed, because though we, we may have trouble now, and that day we will see his face. So Solomon is trying to get us, get our eyes, not just uh, on what we can get now, but what we will get in that day. And he's calling us to remember our creator in our youth. 
He used this analogy of like a water pitcher breaking. I don't know about you, but I, I never plan to break a dish. I never plan to break a, a, a piece of glass in my house. Sometimes it just breaks. Sometimes it's an accident. We all plan to live until the, the glass pitcher of our lives is brittle from so many years and decades, but it might just break because of an accident. Remember your creator now. Don't live for what you can get. Live for what you will get. And he says in these final verses of Ecclesiastes, verse 13 and, and 14, he says that the conclusion when all has been heard is this. Fear God. And keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Let's read it in the ESV. The end of the matter has been heard. Solomon, when he looked at every way you could live your life, every option that was out there, he, he tried it, he experienced it. It's not allegory. He lived the life that we all are considering as options. And he said, after I tried everything, this is what I concluded. Fear God. Have the right attitude about God and the things of God. Respect Him. Don't trifle with Him. Honor Him. Be mindful of God when you make your decisions, when you, when you make choices, when you wake up in the morning, how you're going to live. Your attitude is focus on God. Fear God and keep His commandments. You want to live a life of purpose and meaning? Fear God and keep his commandments. Solomon did the work for us. He investigated all the options. He said, listen, I don't want you to waste your time and waste your lives because you don't know when it's going to end. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon's appeal to us tonight it's to not just live for what we can get, but to live fearing God and keeping his commandments in light of what we will get on the last day. If you want to live a meaningful life, which I think you do and I do, if you want to live a life of purpose, which I think you do and I do, commit yourself to fear God. To fear him. And to keep his commandments. If you need to reset your heart because you haven't been fearing him, you haven't been keeping his commandments, that's why we're here. To hear the ancient wisdom yet again, that we would remember our creator in our youth and we'd realign our souls to say, yes, that's what I want to do with my life. That's how I want to live. Fearing God and keeping his commandments. I don't know what's going to happen as a result of us choosing to do that. I don't know whether it's going to be good, whether it's going to be bad, whether we're going to get out of the parking ticket, whether, whether the windows are going to be smashed of our cars, of our houses. We don't know that. That's not our concern. Our concern is fearing God, keeping his commandments, and trusting that God is going to sort it out in the end. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for reminding me of the great purpose of life again. Forgive me, Lord, for living for what I can get now and making my choices based on that and not on this. I pray, God, that, that, that you could work 
through this word tonight in our hearts. That you would plant deep in our soul a desire to fear you. A desire to keep your commandments and and an awareness of that judgment day that is coming. Lord, I want to live a life of meaning and purpose. I want to live not just for what I can get now, Lord, but what I will get in that day. And God, I want to not rise to that day in shame or in fear, but in, in, in longing. In longing for you to set it all right. For you to explain the unanswered questions that I've had. For you to give me a perspective on the suffering that I've experienced. It didn't make sense. For you to open my eyes so that I can see the world like you see the world, Lord. I want to get to that day in joy and expectation. So, Lord, cause my heart to fear you. And give me a willing spirit to keep your commandments. In Jesus' name. Before closing out, I did want to read out one of the comments on the Restitutio Facebook group. We have a lot of interaction there uh, from time to time on different issues, topics, and, and episodes. And this one comes from Brandon Duke, who writes, I really appreciate Sean's courage to survey and summarize the book of Job. He's referring to last week's podcast. I think he does a great job of explaining a complicated and difficult text, and I'm sure his tie was very stylish that day, uh, but I'm not satisfied with the conclusions drawn. Well, uh, let me just interrupt here. Brandon, we don't wear ties at Revive. It's it's a YMCA camp, and uh, just it's not a conference, so uh, I would have stuck out like a sore thumb if I wore a tie there. It's probably a cardigan, but who knows, right? Duke continues, Indeed, as someone who has read that miserable book, (laughs) word for word, looking for an answer to why God made the world as he did and governs it as he does, I came away genuinely disappointed with the questions it leaves unanswered. It really doesn't answer the question, but appeals to God's power in an effort to trump our sense that we should understand. This seems like a cop-out, an appeal to authority from an ancient Israelite who witnessed the exile, and was trying to make sense of it, which I think is a subtext for the book. That's certainly a hypothesis, but I, I, don't, I would be curious to see any evidence for that, why you would think this is post-exilic, uh, especially considering there's no mention of Israel anywhere in the book or Torah or any of the sorts of things that you would expect. Uh, but that's a side point here. Uh, Duke continues, In other situations, Christians appeal to God's accessibility. The explicability of his commands and plans our status as image bearers due to our possession of communicable reason, and Jesus as the best representation of God via his wisdom and moral perfection. It's only when we see suffering that clashes with those qualities that we shrug and punt. Let me be direct. A good God must possess morally justifying reasons both for creating a world of sharp objects and soft people and for not intervening in every instance of suffering. Let me go further. That same God has a moral obligation to reveal or make accessible to us those reasons. We as created beings who experience the suffering are morally justified to expect, even demand, such an explanation. So is such an explanation available to us? William Lane Craig says God chooses from the feasible worlds the best one. For him, from the moment God creates, everything is settled based on which script God chooses. Uh, This is the idea known as Molinism. 
So indeed, each and every instance of horrific suffering was selected by God over alternatives he declined. Craig's God shrugs, Sorry you get raped and murdered in this script. It was overall better than the other one where you live happily. There are better options, Duke continues. William Hasker argues that God follows policies as a moral governor that sometimes lead to suffering, but are necessary to achieve moral development over his creatures. Likewise, he argues the design of the creation is driven by necessary requirements that enable moral development. Basically, the argument is God couldn't logically set it up any other way, and crucially for us, doesn't play favorites. He doesn't predestine each specific instance of suffering for each individual person. I'm open to other ideas, other solutions, and I'm always going to compare them to Scripture, but the one thing I can't do is close the discussion with question-begging, logically circular appeal to authority by the author of Job, end quote. Uh, Thanks, Brandon, for writing this and engaging in this topic. Obviously, this hit a nerve with you, and when it comes to suffering, this is, is, as Peter Kreeft says, the one great objection to Christianity, to theism, really. And uh, that doesn't mean that it's undefeatable, but it is is certainly something that we do wrestle with uh, because we believe there is a God who cares. And so when we suffer, it is confusing and all the rest. I do share your sense that God must, your belief that God must possess morally justifying reasons for creating our kind of world and intervening and not intervening as he sees fit. I don't believe that he is under any obligation to tell us what his reasons are. I think the point of all the questions that God asked Job is that our world is genuinely complicated. I believe it is too complicated for our minds to grasp. I mean, surely we can get some answers from plenty of other books in the Bible on this subject, and I've laid out a number of those in Podcast 63, Why Does God Allow Suffering?, as well as the next episode after that, which is off script 19, more on why God allows suffering. So it's certainly not the case that Job is the final answer on the subject, but I I think there is a truth to recognize that our world is an insanely complicated place and that there are so many variables that we could not possibly hold them in mind and perceive what God is, is doing in a situation. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't have... He doesn't have some sort of moral principles that he's using by which to make these decisions. It just means that we don't have access to them. And and as unsatisfying as that is, I'm comfortable with that because I've experienced enough of God and I know God well enough that I trust that he is good at being God. <laughs> I guess that's how I would put it. Uh, and uh, so maybe that doesn't satisfy you. You do offer a solution here in another another post. Let me see if I can... I'll, I'll just read that one out too. I, uh, Brandon, I hope you don't mind me uh, reading this other comment that you made out on another place on Facebook. Uh, he, he, he writes his following. We have two questions. One, why did God create such a universe full of sharp objects and soft people? And two, why does God not intervene in each and every case of suffering as, as we would? Answering number one first helps us when we get to number two. And here I think it's helpful if we look at a design question. When an aircraft designer sits down at the computer, he has form follow function. 
an air supremacy fighter is going to have different design elements than a long-haul passenger liner. The end game, the use case, forces his hand on many choices. Is it large and cumbersome with significant fuel stores or nimble with shorter range? Is it low radar observable or does it have significant room for payload? What are the physical limits of the metals he can utilize, the physical limits of the pilots? Likewise, I think our creator gets his hand forced in the design of our universe based on the end game he has selected. Some design choices are just logically entailed by his use case. His ultimate purpose, a bubble boy universe, won't accomplish developing billions of righteous, morally free agents. Just in case you're not aware, that is a Seinfeld reference. And uh, so props to uh, Brandon for uh, making a proper Seinfeld reference there. But bubble boy was a guy who was uh, susceptible to disease, so he had to live his whole life in a bubble. Uh, Duke continues, Neither will a universe with a save-load feature, where every time you mess up, you can reverse the clock and start over. Neither would a universe that prevents persons from interacting with each other. As you can see, this list might go on and on. Uh, I would add to that, uh, Brandon, that we also want the kind of universe that allows science and allows technology. Uh, so, for example, if every time you're pushing a wheeled wagon down the road and some creature gets in front of it, let's say a squirrel, suddenly God interrupts the laws of physics so that the squirrel doesn't get harmed, it, it, you know, it, it, it generates a chaotic world of unpredictable circumstances. You know, if we can't plan on inertia, you'll never go from a wagon to eventually a car or to some other more sophisticated vehicle. Uh, so, you know, I, th I think there is, there is a need for that as well. Uh, Duke continues. No, the universe must be the way it is. Form followed function in God's design room. This helps us understand question number two. Each and every instance where God intervenes, he risks overwhelming us and undermining the design process of authentic learned experience. God must pick his spots very carefully, lest his constant presence leads to two negative outcomes that the cause and effect in the world becomes so unreliable that no morally significant decision be made, and secondly, that persons become slavishly obedient to his overwhelming presence. Remember, the end game, as I have defined it, is autonomous, morally refined, free agents that love him and would qualify for eternal citizenship in his kingdom. So you have my best questions, my best answers on the subject. I welcome any and all critiques as I want to see this rightly and I want to be able to share that right view with others. You don't have to be gentle with me because apparently the rough and tumble suits God's purposes. Oh, that was that was a low blow. All right, so thank you so much for uh, offering those thoughts, uh, Brandon. I, I really do appreciate that. I remember I was in conversation with a, a gentleman a few years back and we were wrestling with uh, how, to, how to make sense of our universe and the suffering and everything like that. And uh, he was using the example of cutting carrots with a big knife and um, that, you know, it, it, that if you slipped the knife and went to cut your finger, that God stopped the knife every time, what kind of world would that produce? And I think it would produce a kind of world where we wouldn't regard wounds or suffering or death, certainly, since there wouldn't be any, with any kind of value and a world where God's presence would be overwhelmingly coercive and there would be no real risk. Think about just like romantic love for a moment. 
why is our society so obsessed? Why are all the songs about it, all the sappy movies about it? And people love to read magazines about it, and especially famous people who are in love and out of love and, and all this. Why, why is that such a big deal? I suggest that it's because when you go to finally say to that person, I love you, you really don't know that they're going to say, I love you back. They might just sort of awkwardly pause and then say, thank you. <laughs> Which is absolutely devastating, of course. But that's what makes it so valuable when they do return love, just on a human level. So I, I, I think God has made, it, made the kind of world that makes love possible also risks a lot of people not wanting to love. And then that love becomes so much more valuable. I'm certainly not breaking any new ground here, but I do appreciate your design approach to this, and I think it can help a lot of people think through this issue. Uh, but, but ultimately, I take comfort in the fact that there are so many other very good reasons to believe in God, wh- whether they be from science or logic or other realms of philosophy or personal experience and so on, that we do have on balance way more reasons to believe in God than not to believe in God. And uh, so then the question becomes, well, how then shall we live? And, uh, you know, I, I think you, you hit the nose, hit the nail right on the head here, that we want to live in such a way as to achieve moral refinement, that we would be free agents who freely choose to love God, and that in this scheme of things, because of what God has done for us, that that would then qualify us for eternal citizenship in his kingdom. I mean, that that is the the end game here. So thanks, Brandon, for your deep thoughts. Uh, thanks to many others who have commented in on that post. And hey, you know, this is important for us to wrestle with. It really is. And it is one of the issues that comes up in conversation over and over, especially with people who have had difficult lives. So I'm glad that we had some engagement on that issue. If you would like to add your voice to the mix, come online to restitudio.org and you can find this episode, which is episode 296, Ecclesiastes, Meaningful Life with Victor Gluckin, and drop a comment there. Or come on to our Restitudio group on Facebook and engage with conversation. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week where we'll hear from Daniel Calcagno on the wisdom of Jesus, and that will round out our wisdom series Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.